It's a pleasure for me to be able to introduce Philip Ziegler, Professor of Christian Dogmatics at the University of Aberdeen. Phil is a native of Canada. <clears throat> he taught at the beginning of his career at the Atlantic School of Theology in Halifax, um, where David McLaughlin is uh, located. He moved to uh, Aberdeen in 2006. He's the author of two uh, really interesting books. The, the first one in 2007 uh, was a book on Wolf Krotke. And those of us who have a fair bit of experience in European Bard studies will know his name very well. Uh, Krotke was a, uh, a Bardian in the Day-Day Air during very difficult times and uh, suffered a great deal as a consequence of uh, persecution of Christian th uh, students during his university days and actually spent, I think, two years in prison. Um, and he's, he's just, he was always, I thought, just uh, uh, a wonderful, wonderful theologian. And I was so glad this, when Phil uh, produced a work on him. His most rec Phil's most recent book is called Militant Grace, The Apocalyptic Turn and the Future of Christian Theology, published this year. And I would encourage you, it's, it's obviously readily available right now, uh, to get yourselves a copy. Um, Apocalyptic for our European visitors doesn't mean the same thing here as it does in, the, in Europe. Um, it, it does not refer to anything sectarian or millenarian or <laughs> anything of that nature. Um, it is a very important strand of current New Testament research and has larger theological implications, which are nicely teased out by Phil. So, Phil. There's a, there's a handout, which... Uh, Kate's been distributing, so hopefully you'll you'll have one to have eyes on there. Um, it it doesn't do much, but what it does do is it puts the the text of uh, Ephesians two eleven to twenty two on the page for you, which will be useful at some point, and also it gives you some sense of uh, of the the basic shape of the paper. So um, perhaps one way to think about what I what I'm hoping to do here uh, at at the minute is that it's it's a sort of extended uh, footnote on the first bit of what Randy did this morning, where she described uh, uh, Marcus Barth's account of uh, Jewish-Gentile relations uh, and its uh, uh, exegetical grounds. Here, I've, I've sort of just blow that up and walk us through the details of, of his account of that, with particular interest in what he has to say about the role of Ephesians 2, so that particular text. So hopefully, the, the text will be interesting. Um, you, you'll recognize some of the themes are beginning to coalesce across the papers, so some of the texts, the, the phrases you'll hear here, you, you will have heard before. Um, I, I hope that's um, uh, useful rather than just tiresome. So let me begin then, um, just with, by way of introduction. So writing in the Feshrift published to Mark, Marcus Barth's 65th birthday, Paul Lehman lauded the then Basel New Testamenter, or New Testamenter's passion for theology, and also his practice of the theology of nonconformity, as he put it. These, Lehman stressed, demanded pursuit of a style of thinking which is at once self-critical and critical of the times in which and against which theology is called to undertake its reflections upon the church's language about God. Bart exercised this passionate and critical nonconformity on, on a number of fronts, as we've already learned and have been discussing so far. It's also on full display in his treatment of the question of the interrelation of Jews and Gentiles in the testimony of the Apostle Paul, not least on the pages of what is arguably his greatest contribution to theological scholarship, his two-volume Ephesians commentary in the Anchor Bible series. This paper considers the abiding significance of Bart's interpretation of Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. In its 
form, Bart's interpretation of these verses exemplifies his own understanding of the theological service of the exegete. So it tells us something about what he thought you were doing when you signed up to be an exegete. In its material, it suggests that the matter of the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile is essential to the telling forth of the gospel of justification by grace because it is ingredient in the realization of the reign of God, whose Christ, as uh, uh, Ephesians says, makes peace through the cross. The essay unfolds in three steps. Uh, it begins with some brief consideration of the genre of Bart's work, considering what it might mean to read him in accordance with his own self-description as a biblical theologian. The second section then explores Bart's arresting claim that Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, represents a high point in Paul's witness concerning Jews and Gentiles, and that its substance is and ought to be programmatic for all Christian thinking about the social historical form and force of God's saving act in, in Christ, and just so, also decisive for Christian understanding of the relationship between Jews and Christians today. The third and concluding section briefly suggests some of the wider theological and ethical consequences of Bart's contention that the Christian life publicly serves one who is our peace, a savior who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in, vir in virtue of the labor of his cross. So with that, the, the first of the material sections, Marcus Bart as biblical theologian. Charles Dickinson, long associated with the Bart Society uh, in, in these parts, has argued that Marcus Bart can and should be understood as an advocate and practitioner of a kind of biblical theology, the kind that came to prominence in the decades following the end of the Second World War. While the term itself admits a wide range of possible and contested meanings, what it picks out in this case is the self-consciously theological horizon and interests of Bart's technical biblical scholarship. And within this, his central commitment to engaging the Bible as a library of texts whose reality and meaning are ultimately determined and therefore must be understood by their place and service within the economy of divine salvation. Its interest in the words arises from its ultimate interest in the word, we might say. On this view, exegesis rightly pursues normative in interpretations. It exposes the, ex the exegete to the claims of the text itself and is thus ambitious to discern precisely by way of rigorous linguistic, textual, and historical endeavor, the concrete promises and claims which issue forth from the text of yesterday for us today. We might think of Bart's style of work as an instance of the kind of descriptive, authoritative, biblical theology, which James Barr famously took issue with and Reverend Childs famously came to advocate, namely the kind of sustained exegetical work that shares the interest of dogmatics in that it sees itself to have a kind of normative function, Barr's own description. And yet, those kinds of observations don't yet comprise the most distinctive elements of Bart's practice as a biblical theologian. Indeed, they might threaten to uh, obscure the, the particularly strong emphasis that Bart places on the diversity, freedom, and the spirited character of the biblical witness and its interpretation. These concerns come across clearly and programmatically in Bart's book, Conversations with the Bible, which we've had uh, mentioned before. It, its argument, that book, uh, builds from historical and textual observations about the nature of the biblical text themselves into a theological account of the nature and authority of the Bible as scripture for the church, heard as the voice of an address or of a dialogue. 
Central to this is Barth's claim that across its many and varied books and in its many and varied voices, the Bible is a book of testimony. That, that word is a prominent one. Which is to say, it's a collection of texts which bear witness in this way and then in that way to the reality of God's intentions and acts and the myriad of human responses which they provoke. Likening biblical texts at one point to an unsystematic and manifold collection of signposts, uh, he does this on appeal to the lexical roots of Torah, meaning guide or point or direct. Bart explains this, to quote him, it is the task of the witness to give a faithful and convincing account of all that he saw and heard at a certain moment. God's biblical witnesses give testimony to specific mighty acts which have been performed once in God's history with his people but which must be made known to many because of their universal and perennial relevance. So the vision here is one of a diverse array of storied precedents of, as Bart explains, sufficient clarity, poignancy, and exemplification to instruct one generation after another in all that pertains to the community between God and humanity. Taken together, they amount to a Magna Carta, he says a vital and eloquent divine authorization of human freedom to live as covenant partners of the one true and living God. The biblical witness is thus an instrument in the hands of the Spirit of God to create, invite, and join the kinds of joyful, grateful, free, faithful, and active human living that aptly embraces the liberties of the children of God. On this basis, Bart suggests that a kind of typological interpretation is the chief mode of understanding and application that is most fitting. Its ubiquity within the Bible itself reflects its capacity to honor, on one hand, the unyielding concreteness of the particular events of the past, while yet, on the other hand, discerning and displaying their power as precedents, precedents that are able to illumine uh, the conversation between God and the human being in other times and other places and other circumstances as well. What this means on Bart's view is that the, the, the kind of theological doctrine which can be drawn out from ex, exegesis of the Bible is always, as he puts it, halakhic in form, by, by which he means lessons won from out of dialogue and debate that point the specific way toward the Lord, or again, practical instructions that emerge from faithful conversations that serve to help women and men walk in the way of God. The authority of these kinds of teachings, he says, is chiefly evidenced by the trust that they inspire and the obedience they actually win. Uh, as Bart makes clear elsewhere, this comports with the character of the gospel itself as, uh, I compress a series of claims here, a message by which all people live, live is the point, uh, a message that is ever news from God, uh, a message which is always being learned day by day, never possessed, and always eluding capture in theological systems. You'll recognize the echoes of, of the Father's t teaching in, in, in that way as well. Of the many things that Bart has to say in elaborating the practice of such exegesis, perhaps three are of particular importance for present purposes. First, the primary task of biblical interpretation is always exposition, by which Bart simply means, as he says, the act of unpacking, unfolding, displaying the manifold contents of the one or several senses of the text. Bart stresses that this content is always itself already the result of interpretation, as every biblical text is composite of interpretive traditions, but one at the base of which stands what he calls God's own interpretation of the human condition. The very work of exposition exposes us to the fact, therefore, that we already are always involved in the history of God with humankind, such that uh, understanding and interpretation occur 
only in the course of active participation in the biblical dialogue itself. By the time you start reading, it's too late for you. You're already in, inside. So that's, that, that's, that's the first concern. Exposition is the business. Second, and correspondingly, um, the exegesis of the Bible uh, always also involves the act of giving an answer, Bart says. Giving an answer to what has been exposed of the text by yielding, being moved, his words, to provide a living response to the living word. To understand here necessarily includes decision, application, and action. It involves the exercise and enjoyment of freedom. When Bart observes that the reason that some of the best exegetes in the tradition, it's always interesting what names follow a claim like that. So here are his four, uh, uh, Origen, Augustine, Luther, and Bengal. Uh, When he explains the reason why exegetes like that were incapable of producing systematic works of theology, he says that 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 was exactly because of their devotion to suffering uh, their their exposure to the living word and the demand to exercise a living response in freedom to that word. When he says these things, he is surely offering a quiet uh, apologia vita sua as well. Third and finally is the idea that the biblical interpreter, alive to the Spirit's superintention and patient upon the work of the word among others, will, as he says, not pretend to master the whole biblical canon, but will be open to the witness of neglected parts of that canon, parts that may be brought to his attention by his fellow biblical students. This claim is notable for two reasons. On the one hand, it bespeaks the necessarily extended social and communal character of biblical interpretation as Bart recognizes and recommends it. The Bible, we might say, is read together or it is not read well or indeed not really read at all. On the other hand, it authorizes exegetes like himself to give sustained attention to books and passages which, while perhaps overlooked or bypassed by many other interpreters, are yet still voices in our conversation with the Bible, voices that may in fact deliver invaluable witness again today. Bart's lifelong devotion to the study and interpretation of books like the Layman and Colossians and Ephesians, these latter two texts long considered the early Catholic stepchildren of the authentic Pauline letter corpus, represents an exercise of just this kind of freedom. So I I think we'll do well to keep these three thoughts in view as we turn uh, now to Bart's interpretation of the witness of Ephesians 2. So with this, uh, Ephesians 2 as Paul's pinnacle and program. So Bart's interpretation of Paul generally and his assessment of Paul's view of the relation of Jew and Gentile, Israel and church in particular, stands, as we've heard, in tension with a long tradition of Pauline interpretation that stresses the antithesis between the righteousness that comes by faith and that to be achieved by means of the law. And so also between the divine grace that creates the former and the human striving that pursues the latter. At the sharp end of this tradition is the view firmly articulated by Ernst Kaysemann, that, quote, the apostle's real adversary is the devout Jew, not only as the mere image of his own past, though that too, but as the reality of the religious man. In pushing against this tradition as he does, Bart anticipates, uh, as have been noted, many aspects of the new perspective on Paul, associated with figures like James Dunn and Ed, Ed Sanders, though I think it's arguable that Bart's own theological investments are much more conspicuous than, than would be the case, uh, especially in the case of Ed Sanders, perhaps. Bart accounts for the evident tensions between Paul's sharp polemics against his fellow Jews in texts like 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 to 16, Galatians 4, 
30, uh, assaults that Bart explains are akin to the painful complaints of Jeremiah and some of the Psalms of revenge in the, in the Old Testament. So the tension between those texts and the more ironic claims of texts like Romans 9 to 11 and Ephesians by appealing to the development of Paul's doctrine. The early barbed claims can, he says, hardly be considered the, the apostles' timeless teaching, as all of Paul's letters are occasional writings in which he deals with concrete situations as a missionary, pastor, and overseer of the church. What's represented across the letter corpus is therefore an evolution in Paul's thinking about Israel, one that reflects his own learning over the course of his ministry and, crucially for our purposes, peaks, as Bart says, in what Paul has to teach about the people of God in Ephesians. So Bart is bold to suggest that it might well be, as he writes, that the epistle of the Ephesians, rather than Romans, contains the summary of Paul's message. As Paul himself may have written it to the Gentile members of that congregation a considerable time after Romans. If Ephesians, after all, comes from Paul and represents much more than Romans the kind of last will and testament, Bart remarks, then late in life, the apostle seems to have been able to present his gospel ironically. So ironically that, that it lacks almost entirely polemic. Polemic under the sign of, it is swamped under the sign of peace, incorporated and proclaimed in Jesus Christ. Is that my phone? <laughs> Sorry, no, that's good. That's the worst when you leave your own phone on it. <laughs> Let me try that sentence again, just, just, just to get my rhythm. Sorry. That. So if, if Ephesians is the last will and testament, and not Romans 9 to 11, if Ephesians is that text, then Bart's excited by the thought that at the end of his life, Paul is able to, as he says, present his gospel ironically and almost entirely without polemic, and, and that he does that under the sign of peace incorporated and proclaimed in Jesus Christ. So Bart insists that responsible reading of Paul demands that his interpreters, as he says, follow the apostle and progress with him on the road which leads him to affirm that there is only one people of God, Israel, and that, by the grace shown through Israel's Messiah, Gentiles have become members even of this people. Um, the, one of the epigraphs uh, uh, on the handout is, is, is another variation of that claim that Marcus makes, which is to say that um, if you want to be a faithful disciple of Paul rather than a Paulinist, you have to follow him through to the end, and that means taking Ephesians seriously as the culmination of his thinking about these matters. So this theme, which is to say how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, as it's put in chapter 3, verse 6. This theme is the singular mystery of which this letter speaks. Explicating the form and dynamics of the mystery is the business of Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, a passage that Bart takes, as he says, as the key and high point of the whole epistle. Distinctively, Paul here proclaims a gospel of peace in a world riven by hostility. Bart's full explication of this passage is extended, detailed, and closely argued, as you would imagine. And here we lift up for mention only a few of the most important theological themes and the structures to which he draws specific attention. So first, as noted, Christ and his work are cast here almost exclusively in terms of peace. It's very distinctive. Christ is our peace. Christ is the one who preached peace to Gentiles and Jews alike, and who in his body, in his person, and in his blood, at various points in the passage, makes peace. This is first and foremost peace between those who were far off and those who were near, which is to say between those who were strangers, who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and those at home in the covenants of promise. 
It is only then a peace that wins, as Paul says, access in one spirit to the Father. Neither Jew nor Gentile receive peace except when the Messiah comes to save and unite both of them, Bart writes. The passage tells of the horizontal reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles before it tells of the vertical reconciliation of those same people with God. And Bart thinks this sequence is distinctive and important. Second, the work of Christ which secures this peace is twofold. On the one hand is the destructive work, the destructive work of breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, of ending the enmity of Jew and Gentile in his body through the cross, and of abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances. After canvassing several possible interpretations of the wall of hostility, Bart concludes that uh, it should be understood retrospectively, which is to say from solution to plight, uh, as that which has, been, which has been broken down by Christ. And thought like that, its meaning, he says, is fourfold, encompassing, on one hand, the fact of separation between Israel and the nations, on the next, the divisive effect of the law and its statutes and its interpretations. On the next, the, the enmity between Gentile and Jew as such. And finally, the common uh, enmity of Jew and Gentile share towards God. So much turns on the claim here that with the curious phrase, the law, that is only the commandments expressed in statutes, as Bart renders it in his translation, Paul specifically has in view the separating function and effect of the law as a barrier between Israel and the nations. As he writes, when we allow the meaning to be controlled by the local context, Christ has abrogated the divisive function of the law and therefore not God's holy law itself, but its divisiveness was terminated when Jesus Christ died on the cross. So the destructive work. On the other hand is the constructive work. The constructive work of Christ coming, declaring, making one, making peace, creating, reconciling, all verbs that variously characterize God's saving work as a sovereign act of pacification and unification, from which the formerly inimical parties, as he says, have nothing but gain. Now these gains are threefold. The expansion and the upbuilding of the household of God by the inclusion of new citizens, uh, access in the spirit to the Father in the celebration of worship, and finally, the creation of an, an important phrase for Marcus Bart, the one new man in the place of the two. Bart's understanding of this third fruit of peace, as he calls it, bears some consideration. Bart speaks of Christ's peacemaking through the cross as an act of creation, to distinguish it from mere improvement or amelioration as well as to, to, to attribute divine dignity and novelty to it. Strikingly, the crucified Christ is the subject of the verb to create. What's brought into being, Bart says, the one new man is an eschatological reality. The one new man being an eschatological category that Bart argues can only refer to the church as the bride and partner of Christ. Critical to his reading here is Paul's claim that Christ creates this new man out of two, so creation here is not ex nihilo, but is rather out of the mutual enmity of the people dead in their sins. Bart concludes that Ephesians alone calls God's covenant partner one new man. And he emphasizes that this entity consists of two, that is Jews and Gentiles, drawn together into an organic body consisting of distinct members and not an amalgamation. This last point is important to Bart. For it, for it sees the meaningful differences between Jew and Gentile maintained within the unity of the body of the people of God, because the new covenant partner created by the cross is a social being, he says, that enjoys its unity in diversity. 
To explicate this claim, Bart often invokes parallels with the parable of the prodigal son, which we had uh, in, invoked earlier. Uh, when he does that, he wants to note how the full communion with the father or Lord is possible only when the hostility between the older and the younger brother, which is to say the segregation between Jews and Gentiles, is brought to an end. While the distinctive histories of the son who was far off and the one who re remained near remain. So the upshot of all of this is to solidify Bart's overarching claim that in Ephesians, community with Israel is not just a possible or desirable consequence of the eternal plan of God, of the making of peace through the cross of Christ and of the revelation of his mystery through the spirit, but rather that what God has planned, performed and revealed has no other content and character than precisely this full community of the Gentiles with Israel. At this juncture, it's worth remarking on several further distinctive aspects of Bart's interpretive practice here. So first, Bart's case for the centrality of the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile does not, he suggests, come at the expense of an affirmation of sola gratia, quite the opposite. God's faithfulness to his covenant promises is the sole ground of hope for the salvation of Israel, and so the salvation of the Jews is precisely a testimony to the sheer gratuity of God's saving will and action. As he stresses at several points, Gentile hope and salvation turns on the truth of Israel's witness and reality at just this point, which is to say that either the salvation of Israel in virtue of the abiding strength of divine grace alone stands as the decisive precedent for the future of the church of Jews and Gentiles, or else that church is properly hopeless. Kazeman's claim was that the reality of justification of the ungodly meant the apostle's real adversary is the devout Jew. Bart's claim is that the reality of the justification of the ungodly means that the apostles' hope for Gentiles hangs entirely on their being brought near and encompassed together with Israel by peace through the cross. Said most strongly, perhaps, that we are saved by grace alone is, quote, a fact which can be demonstrated and acknowledged only when the Christian's solidarity with Israel is observed. Bart suggests that integral to the mission and service of Israel is its capacity to exhibit the truth of saving divine grace before the eyes of the nations, which is a point that um, Randy made for us this morning. Here's uh, a, a passage from the commentary where Bart makes this claim again. So the Jews, he writes, reveal what a surprising God the Lord is, and what an, an amazing action is the, is the salvation of the human by God. If, despite their mutterings and rebellions, the Jews' salvation is the type and exemplar of all human salvation, then nothing is left but to say that we are saved by grace, as indeed Paul says it, Ephesians 2, 5 and 8. Anti-Semitism, he, he continues, whether in churchly or pagan form, is therefore always a display of works righteousness and self-redemption. It's, it's a lovely piece of jujitsu ju, ju, ju there at the end to, to flip the, uh, the charge on its back. So that's, that's the first point. Um, uh, the claim about Jews and Gentiles does not come at the expense of sola gratia, but is in fact an articulation of an understanding of what sola gratia means and the grounds upon which it might be confessed. The second comment is this. A further hallmark of Barth's interpretation is the way in which it connects the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile with what we might call the cosmic scope and horizon of Paul's gospel. We heard a little bit of this uh, yesterday from, from Ross's uh, paper. Bart insists that Paul is not rightly understood when all his statements are passed through an, anth an anthropological bottleneck. Bart is alert to the prominence of Paul's discourse of the, of the powers and principalities, and he suggests that these categories pick out the structures and institutions that, as he writes, surround us with enticing or repulsive 
with reasonable or unbearable claims that bid for our allegiance. Importantly, texts like Ephesians 1, 20-23 signal that, salvation, uh, the, that, that the salvation at issue in Paul's telling of the gospel extends beyond the troubled human soul to the cosmos itself. For the sovereign, reconciling work of God comprehends the function of all structures and energies as they operate in nature, history, society, and the psyche, he explains, and thus establishes a new human freedom to live in their midst. Undoubtedly, just what is involved in overcoming the antinomy between near and far and the divisive uh, enmity of Jew and Gentile, and so also all the social, political, and other concrete forms in which these are iterated and forced and expressed, is illumined when the peace of Christ's work and rule is acknowledged to include a new ordering of the basic structure of all things. Indeed, as Bart himself says, the act of judgment by which God graciously justifies miserable sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike, is an act of worldwide cosmic judgment by which a total new order, even the very renewal of heaven and earth, is begun. In light of these two aspects, the sola gratia aspect and this cosmic motif, we must observe third and finally Barth's important claims concerning the priority of what he styles the socio-historical character of justification. And again, we had a, an account of this from the justification book yesterday. Uh, in an essay where he compares Galatians and Ephesians, Bart explains this. He writes, the doctrine of justification unfolded in Galatians as well as in Romans and in Philippians is a sermonic and pastoral expression of the one great act of God, which is to say the advent, the person, the work, and especially the cross of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, the meaning and the effect of the death of Christ on the cross is praised in other words, just as emphatically as in Galatians with an emphasis on the salvation of human beings by grace alone and by faith alone, yet additionally with a special accent on the community-creating power of God. As we've seen in Ephesians, though not, of course, merely in Ephesians, Paul lays specific emphasis on the inclusion of the Gentiles as citizens within God's reign. Barr contends that the public and social character of this message is essential rather than accidental to it. Since the life together of former insiders and outsiders and the distinct ethics of that life are the very purpose and result of that judgment of God, which Paul has to announce, as he says. Or as he puts it in a different place, if it is peace from and with God, then it is also peace among human beings. And only by changing human social relations does God also change the individual person's life. With this emphasis, Paul shows himself a pragmatist, Bart says, interesting, uh, rather than a dreaming idealist wanting to point out the way in which Christ's saving work is itself a matter of divine action, action able to produce actual practical effects in the world. Ephesians thus advances a political, social, public concept of the working of God's grace, which makes manifest that the much-praised peace of the soul looks like a ridiculous mini-achievement, as Bart puts it, beside the peace and order brought to the world. Bart is anxious to resist the temptation to conceive of justification individualistically. As he explains, justification is always in, in common, always the justification of the neighbor and me together, always co-justification, because no one is ever made righteous for himself. Justification by faith is a reality, he explains, only in community with those fellow human beings whom God elected for common justification. Bound to Together in the grim solidarity of sin, we are all the more bound together in virtue of being implicated in the acquittal of one another by grace. 
In a slightly different register, this same point about the social historical form of justification concerns our assurance of faith. Barr contends that if there is no personal justification of God without justification of our fellow human beings by God, then there is also no faith in the, in the justifying God without acceptance of the witness given by the neighbor. The need for the testimony of others to the grace of God by which I too am justified amplifies the social quality of the event of salvation itself. We find certainty of salvation in the fact that our neighbors are those who have received grace. As Bart writes, this is a nice formulation. The words pro-may can be uttered with certainty only when they are supported by the realization that God has already given to others his righteousness. In the context of Paul's witness, the Jew and the Gentile are, of course, primary neighbors for one another in just this sense. So much so, in fact, that Barr concludes that justification by faith and the, and the unity of Jew and Gentile are, for Paul, obviously not only inseparable, but, as he concludes in, in the last analysis, identical. So as previously noted, the social reality of justification means, Bart stresses time and again, not an erasure of difference, the production of a boring uniformity or an artificial equality, his phrase, but rather the bringing together of such differences in a necessary, fruitful, and mutual service. There is no, justific no justification by grace without the miracle that not only Gentile Christians, he writes, but also Jews, and not only Jewish Christians, but also Jews, and not only Jewish Christians, but also Gentiles, have been justified by God and will be justified. If we are, if we are only reconciled to God in and with Sorry, let me start again. If we are only reconciled to God in and as we are reconciled by God to one another, then the neighbor always stands forth as the chief witness to the reality of divine grace. I see and trust grace as I see and trust it in the lives of those others whom God is making righteous around, before and with me. In this, Jews and Gentiles are the prototypical neighbors, not by choice, but rather because they have become the children of God only by having been made neighbors by the inclusion of the Gentiles into the household of God at God's good pleasure. In short, the salvation designated by the phrase peace through the cross in Ephesians 2 in Bart's account is at once utterly gracious, fully cosmic in scope and character, and specifically socio-historical in its form and consequences. Or we could say, again, the messianic creation of the new human being out of two that peaceably encompasses previously estranged Jews and Gentiles in his body is God's all at once unassailably merciful, sovereign, and moral act. And with that, the last of the sections, Peace Through the Cross, the Politics of Justification. So writing in his late commentary on Colossians, Bart makes the following claim. He says, as in the epistle to the Ephesians, so also here in the epistle to the Colossians, the gospel is distinguished by the message that through the Messiah, non-Jews have attained access to the God of Israel and to a share in the Jewish inheritance. And then he continues, the history of the church is thus participation in the Old Testament Judaic history, just as the theology of the church is participation in the Old Testament Judaic theology. The community and unity of Jews and Gentiles is to glorify the magnitude of God's love for his people. This love, he, he finishes, reaches deeper and farther than the men and women in the account of the Hebrew Bible ever expected. To call the Christian church to hear and to heed and to reckon with this voice in the midst of the conversation with the Bible is one of Marcus Barth's signal contributions to Christian and theological existence. If his voice is perhaps no longer quite so distinctive, no longer quite so non-conformist, 
uh, because no longer quite so angular in relation to the, to the conversation about Paul or the discussion about the contours of the gospel or in particular about the, the relationships between Jews and Christians as it once was, then this itself is a testament to Barth's scholarly acumen, his prescience, and perhaps also his power to instruct. In an application of his own principles of biblical theology noted above, Barth himself was always keen to discern in Paul's treatment of the justification of Jew and Gentile together in Ephesians, a crucial apostolic precedent, a precedent that might serve to inform and illuminate and to adjudicate crucial aspects of contemporary Christian existence. Indeed, Barth is bold to claim that Paul's testimony to the unity of Jew and Gentile as justified in Christ bears directly upon the present day and the present day reality of world and church. So writing in uh, Catalagate, the organ of the, of the Committee of the Southern Churchmen in 1966 in the middle of the civil rights struggle, Bart emphasized that justification in Christ is a moral matter, such that the union and solidarity with Christ in death and life can only be affirmed when there is also union and solidarity with brothers and sisters. He explained there that the peace won for Jews and Gentiles through the cross is for Paul the foundational social reconciliation from which the hope for the overcoming and healing of all other divisions flow. This reconciliation stands as the prototype, paradigm, and biblical analog, all his words, of human reconciliation as such. Indeed, for Barth, there is no limit, as he writes, set to the relevance of what has happened to Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ. Or again, at another place, where he observes the union of Jews and Gentiles created in Jesus Christ is also the basis, the prototype, and the criterion for the whole of social ethics. Cast in this way, the tragic failure of Christians to receive and to own and to live out the peace won for, for Gentiles and Jews together through the cross is not only a moral failure, though it certainly is that. It's also a dis-evangelion, a false counter-testimony to the gospel of reconciliation. To neglect the purchase and force of this apostolic precedent, whether by culpable ignorance or active suppression, by comfortably continuing to acquiesce in the manifold disharmonies of our political and social and ecclesial life, is at once a moral and a spiritual matter. Such conduct is not, is not, not only tasteless and inhuman, but it is an absurd outworking of sin, and therefore also a betrayal of the gospel of peace. Now, Bart explains that Paul's um, uh, uh, edifying instruction at the end of each of his letters offers what he calls indications in what directions Christians were to move at his time. But he continues, they are not abiding casuistic laws, but rather in, in every age, Christians should muster the courage to make analogous decisions. There's an exclamation mark after that. Muster the courage to make analogous decisions. Bart himself exercised this courage on many occasions, venturing to think and to speak per analogium about racial conflict in the United States, about tensions between the capitalist West and the communist East, about the exploitative relations of developed North with the developing South, as well as the relations of Arabs and Israelis in the Middle East. In all these cases, the concrete hope that he pursued lay in discerning where the grace of God that judges justifies and reconciles enemies, was winning, perhaps unknowingly, witnesses, and was breaking up the givens of the, of the present in which human enmity is inscribed and embedded so as to open up a future of reconciliation that might reflect the peace that had been won through the cross. 
Bart wagered such political and social interventions in faith that, as he put it, the content of the gospel is the realistic politics of God who knows how justice is created. And when he did so, that is Marcus, the text of Ephesians 2 was regularly at his hand. Let me submit as an absolutely final point that it's significant that Bart should have published several of his most substantive essays on aspects of the theme we've been discussing here in the newly founded Journal of Ecumenical Studies in the 1960s. This suggests not only that he recognized its ecumenical significance for the divided churches, but also reflects his view that the abiding division of church and synagogue stood for him as the prototypical ecumenical problem. He offers this provocative and programmatic statement of the task for Christians as he sees it. Too often, he writes, the doctrine of the people of God, which should probably be called laology, is overshadowed or replaced by ecclesiology. I, Bart, call for the unfolding of a messianic laology, which embraces all Jews, not merely the remnant which believes in the Messiah already come. False decisions and attitudes taken with reference to the unity of God's people have the theological weight of Christological heresies. In the Christian's relation to the Jewish savior, their relationship with Jews is decided. In the relationship with Jews, their relation to, to Jesus Christ is verified or falsified. At a minimum, Marcus Bart's reading of Ephesians lifts out one notable element of the polyphonic testimony of the New Testament to suggest that this voice and precedent invites our present hearing, seeks our present acknowledgement, and timelessly claims and directs the exercise of Christian freedom in our own day. At a maximum, Bart invites us to align ourselves un unreservedly with the mature culmination of the Apostle Paul's very own witness to the pacifying work of the cross and its meaning for the salvation of Jews and Gentiles together. In either case, what Bart himself said during the debates surrounding the Second Vatican Council's uh, document Nostra Aetate still holds true, I think, for us today. He wrote, it is the common unsolved task of the great and the small Christian congregations to set to work to learn, to respect, and boldly confess the special mystery of Israel, not least because the mystery of Israel, the mystery of the suffering servant, the mystery of God's grace and righteousness for all people are identical. Thanks very much. <laughs>